IPI Freedom Dialogues, Turkey. Join the conversation on the future of quality journalism. Welcome to Freedom Dialogues, Turkey. I am Cansu Çamlıbel. Freedom Dialogues is brought to you from Istanbul by the International Press Institute, IPI. With this bi-monthly podcast, we are aiming to focus on the press freedoms and freedom of expression issues in Turkey, as well as around the world. We would like to raise awareness and hopefully attract a broader support for the cause of journalism. On some occasions, we try to broaden our scope to talk about human rights abuses in today's Turkey. It's such a huge subject, obviously, but most of the human rights-related cases in Turkey today have a lot to do with violations of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And I often find myself underlining the fact that In Turkey, journalists are not the only group whose freedom of expression is constantly restricted. People who are not even close to being public figures have been prosecuted in the last decade for inciting the president, inciting the government, and so on. Since we are observing the International Human Rights Day this week, I thought it would be very relevant to expand this week's discussion beyond journalistic problems and freedom of speech, and I have a very prominent expert with me. Emma Sinclair-Webb is the Turkey Director at the Human Rights Watch. Emma, welcome to Freedom Dialogues. Thank you. For our audience, maybe we can say a few words on the areas that you have been working on since you took on the Turkey portfolio, police violence, killings by the state, impunity to perpetrators, misuse of terrorism laws, arbitrary detentions, and of course, everything related to the freedom of expression. Your Turkish is apparently perfect, but of course, we are going to conduct this interview in English. Well, we have been hearing a lot of death threats and security threats to certain politicians. In fact, we have to remind the audience that some of those threats have been openly stated in the, the public eye. I'm referring to the case of Çakıcı, the mafia leader, threatening main opposition CHP's leader. Politics at the highest level, seems to be taken hostage by this poisonous rhetoric. How does this translate into the general psyche of the people, Emma? And do you think there is a link between the predominant political rhetoric and Turkey's human rights record in 2020? Well, absolutely. That's a very expansive question. Of course, it's a kind of truism now to say that it's a highly politically polarized atmosphere in Turkey. Political extremes, no ability to find consensus on any issue. And during the pandemic period, we've seen really from the government a lack of willingness to work with the opposition in any way to combat the public health crisis that the country's going through. In many ways, I think we've seen in the last year the pandemic instrumentalized for the government's own intentions, which are to further suppress opposition political activity, oppositional voices and criticism, and to really use the pretext of the public health scare to justify banning, for example, freedom of assembly. Many demonstrations have been banned in the recent period using the the pretext of COVID-19. During this period also, we've seen the government use its parliamentary majority to rush through many pieces of very problematic legislation which definitely further restrict rights and directly contravene Turkey's own laws and, and international law as well. 
So it's uh, violations of Turkey's existing constitutional guarantees and international law, which Turkey is uh, obliged to conform with. So the, the last few months, you know, have seen a sort of dizzying pace of activity in Parliament, rushing through bills that further add to the highly problematic environment for rights in the country. And, and as far as the psyche of the people, I mean, I think that's a really very difficult question to answer because obviously people are very preoccupied with issues around the health scare and the pandemic, but also around the economy and employment. And we've seen a phenomenal number of people lose their jobs or particularly young people, find that they aren't, haven't been able to enter the job market at all. And people are living on the poverty line, which of course can mean that issues like freedom of expression sound very abstract to ordinary people. Using the right to freedom of expression, the right to criticize the government as a sort of fundamental rights issue might feel abstract at a time when you're not able to pay the bills. You know, you don't know what your future is in terms of your livelihood. Because the political landscape is taken over by such a male, oppressive, violent agenda, this is actually translating into the psychologies of ordinary men in the streets. And as you said, COVID-19 has been a pretext for many things in Turkey right now. Uh, one of the issues was this amnesty, which was passed through the parliament back in spring. And because of that amnesty, many male perpetrators have gone out of prisons, went back to their homes, went back to threatening their wives and kids or former wives and kids. This is still a very deep wound in Turkey, right, Emma? One of the big problems is after that prisoner amnesty, we have very little information or data about uh, the outcome for women at home who may have had abusive husbands who suddenly returned. We don't actually have figures on that. And nor do we have, unfortunately, figures on many issues connected with domestic violence and with killings of women by close relatives or current or former partners. Turkey is a country that has very deliberately not provided data, disaggregated data on these kinds of questions. Similarly, Turkey doesn't provide data on any question relating to ethnicity. So the data isn't broken down on ethnic grounds or ethnic lines or gender lines in general. So we do have a big problem with tracing and following what is happening. Women's groups, of course, are, provide lots of information and, you know, there are a very high number of killings of women by close relatives or partners. These stretch into the hundreds, but the figures are contested. But it is very worrying, I think, that the state doesn't try to seek out this information in terms of data, because it shows a kind of resistance in a way to dealing with the problem. You don't really recognize a problem if you're unwilling to actually start counting and classifying the number of cases, because once you start to do that, then you can start also to find solutions. You are demonstrating your intolerance of the problem. So I think back to the prisoner law, prisoner early release law, of course, it was a highly discriminatory law because it left out as a whole prisoners held on remand. So those are prisoners who haven't yet received final convictions and held in pretrial detention. Those people were left out, as were prisoners who are charged with terrorism crimes. And whereas in most countries, of course, you know, terrorism crimes sound like a big deal, like you've really done something very serious. In Turkey, we know that the use of terrorism laws, counter-terrorism legislation is, is rife and pervasive and anyone can get accused of terrorist crimes just because of a speech, because of joining an assembly or demonstration, 
all because of meeting and hanging out with the wrong people. So you've got a pervasive misuse of that. And those people were not able to benefit from the early release program. So it is extremely unjust. And it's pointed out very often, of course, that among those people, there are lots of journalists who didn't get out of prison, human rights defenders, politicians, elected politicians. But also, I think we should remember that there are thousands of other people who are charged with membership of terrorist organization for association with the Gulen movement, but who never committed anything beyond going to conversation groups, Gulenist conversation groups. They did not commit anything that at the time they committed it was a crime let alone a terrorist crime. Emma, you talked about problematic legislations that are being passed at the Turkish parliament in the last months. According to you, according to Human Rights Watch, what have been the most problematic ones? I mean, obviously the prisoner law is an early release law, but after that, strikingly the social media law, uh-huh. the law that changed the situation for social media companies with more than a million users a day. That is a highly problematic law. And another problematic one was the law which affected bar associations and reconstructed the idea of bar associations to diminish the power of the biggest bar associations, which have been a critical voice against the government in the last couple of years. So I think those are the two, probably the leading pieces of legislation that are particularly problematic. The social media law is already a problematic law. The restriction on internet freedom in Turkey is already well known. But this new law, the social media, the new amendment to the social media law, of course, takes that much further. And it's actually a work in progress. We don't actually know what the full outcome will be because it's it's not fully implemented yet. But what it could turn into is something extremely dangerous for Turkey, a whole new level of censorship. But when it comes to the platforms for expression, expressing your views, mainly Facebook and Twitter, they took a back step and they are not complying with the regulations yet. Are you in touch with any of those companies Do you have backdoor conversations as Human Rights Watch and other uh, human rights NGOs making statements, appealing to them publicly? But do you have any private conversations uh, with those companies? Oh, absolutely. We have been in touch with Facebook on the risks that this new law will prove for uh, greater censorship in Turkey. We've certainly spelled out the content of the law to them and how it is problematic in a setting where you have courts that are under government control already, where you have a judicial system that really is indexed to political decision-making and does the government's bidding. So, I mean, we've really tried to, yeah, of course, we've tried to explain that the setting in Turkey and how the setting in Turkey is fundamentally different from the setting in Germany, where, of course, the Turkish government has regularly said that actually with this social media law, They are doing what the German government has also done. Basically, you know, the setting in Turkey is what makes this law so dangerous. That's what, yeah, that's what we have tried to explain to the social tech companies, especially Facebook. So far, they have, Facebook in particular has, is on record as saying it's not complying. The others have not made public statements and they're not particularly public about this. But what we understand from the first fines that have been imposed is that there is non-compliance by, as well as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Periscope, YouTube, and TikTok, who have all received fines for not setting up a local office in compliance with the new law. The new law brought in uh, this requirement from the 1st of October that a local office should be set up, a local legal representative should be in place. Now, they didn't comply with that, so they got a 
a fine 30 days later. And I believe they have a, a second fine has also been imposed on some of them at the two month point, two months after non-compliance. And, you know, and these are quite big fines. We're talking, I think the first fine, a million dollars, and the second fine is three and a half million dollars for non-compliance. And so it will go on. So in January, there will be, for non-compliance, they'll lose the possibility of getting advertising revenue from Turkish companies. So what will happen is that Turkish companies will not be allowed to pay the platforms to put ads on the platforms. And therefore, that huge source of advertising revenue will disappear in early January. And then after that, another three months after that, comes the point if there's still non-compliance, there will be the possibility for the regulator, and the regulator meaning the Information and Communication Technologies Authority, the BTK, regulates the internet. That regulator can then start to apply to the courts for actual internet throttling, as we call it. So that's bandwidth reduction, which makes a platform's bandwidth reduced by, first of all, up to 50%, and then up to later on up to 90%. And once you start that internet throttling, as it's called, platforms become pretty much unusable at a certain point, very frustrating to use and, and even unusable. So that is, of course, a really worrying prospect that by April, May, you may get to the point where if this law is imposed, we really lose access to the most widely used social media platforms in the country. That is a greatly worrying step if it happens. To come back to your question, yes, we've been talking to social media companies, but we've also been talking to the government. And our main target in all the work we do is the Turkish government, Turkish authorities, the ministry, the justice ministry in particular. And, you know, we, of course, we have shared with them also our concerns about this law. So the first thing we would say is not just that the tech companies shouldn't comply. That can't be our only message or main message. Our main message would be that really the Turkish government should think about this law and not implement it and decide to drop the law. That would be the biggest ask we would have. Because as we see it, this use of social media in Turkey, as everywhere else, is absolutely cross-generational, cross-political. It's for everybody. Social media is used by everybody. Aunts and uncles, grandmas are using Facebook. Younger people are obviously using more TikTok and other Instagram. There are different generations using different parts of social media. And it's an extremely important tool of communication for people through a pandemic. That's one thing to say. But in daily life, and there's all sorts of usages of the ruling party, that party, the MHP, all of them are using social media to do their political messaging, to reach their supporters. They would also be shooting themselves in the foot to impose this law and get rid of these platforms. In other countries, we've seen that getting rid of social media or attempts to limit it haven't really worked. In Russia, Russia is one case in point. They haven't really managed to get rid of the use of social media or limit it. So I think it's very important to say, not only that from a human rights point of view, there's a danger of censorship, there's a danger of loss of access to all sorts of information that's critical of the government, that provides independent and critical news coverage, websites, that uh, very much depend on their social media platforms to sort of get their news out. Uh, as well as that, we're looking at a huge restriction on people's right to communicate and people's right to information, which is nothing to do with critical information about the government. It's to do with, this is how people live now. And attempting to get rid of that possibility of communicating via social media or having that access to information 
is really just runs counter to the, the modern age. And it would plunge Turkey into, a, you know, a dark era of restricted information and communication. And that can't be good for any country. The social media has been kind of the, the oxygen for people, especially for the oppositional voices in Turkey, given the fact that the mainstream media in the country, both the televisions and also TV stations and also newspapers, are strictly controlled by pro-government business people. People usually take to the social media to express different opinions and to object, to criticize the predominant views. So turning that voice off will apparently hurt Turkish civil society a lot, a lot. And I hope, as you mentioned, the tech giants and the Turkish government will find maybe a new way to stop this happening. I would like to talk about something else. This is a very particular case where we can talk about torture, mistreatment, unlawful killing all together. I'm talking about this case in Man when two villagers were thrown from a military helicopter. And this is one of the very hurtful stories that kind of makes me feel like I'm still living in the 90s in Turkey. This is a very important case to highlight because not only that one villager was killed and the other one was injured very badly, but also four Kurdish journalists are now behind the bars for reporting on it. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it is a very emblematic case. Further information has come out about the case because the surviving man who was the victim of being lynched by soldiers, as he claims, has actually been able to talk now on record about what exactly happened to them. And what we understand from his account is that he and the other man who, who sadly died of his injuries days after this incident, were actually taken away in the helicopter from their village. It was a village in the a remote part of the southeast, an area actually connected to uh, Betu Shibab, which is in Shirnak province, but it's on the border with Van province. So it's sort of in a really a very remote area. The two men were taken after a clash in the village, a clash between the military and the PKK, in which some soldiers died. The whole village was raided by the soldiers. I mean, people were lined up. And then these two men were taken away in a military helicopter. And this is how he tells the story. He says that they were indeed pushed out of the helicopter, but as it was either on the ground or landing, it wasn't a question of being thrown out of the helicopter from a huge height, as was originally thought, perhaps. The two men were beaten or lynched by a number of soldiers en masse. So it was a kind of mass torture of these two men. So it's a very alarming story. And it obviously tragically led to the death of Servet Turgut. This whole incident needs to be fully investigated by the prosecutor. But we know that there's huge pressure on the case because it involves the military. And really in the recent period, we've seen once again that the military and the security forces and the police are untouchable, that there is such an entrenched culture of impunity that even when there is very strong evidence, we get people either just not investigated, no case opened, or if they are investigated and the case against soldiers or police is opened, then somehow uh, the case is drawn out over a long, long period and there's an acquittal at the end or a very, very minimal token sanction. And that's a repeated pattern we've seen in it. There are really dismaying cases of really compelling, strong evidence, as there is in this case, which uh, still result in no justice for the victims. So it's a horrifying reminder of Turkey's 
recent past in the 80s and 90s where torture was systematic and also it shows us again that there has been a return to torture and ill treatment in custody. Usually it concerns police, usually it's police officers who are responsible. We have less information about the military involvement in this because a lot of the things that happen of course in the southeast are not well reported because there are a few journalists very few journalists able to know what happens in remote areas and report on it and those journalists as you said who do report on it find themselves absolutely targeted all the time arbitrary detention bogus prosecutions where their actual journalistic activity becomes criminalized and we've seen in the case of the Van Mesopotamia Agency office that it was raided straight after this incident. Four journalists were immediately detained and have been put in pre-trial detention. What we see in cases like this is it's not they're not going to be accused of having reported on this case, taking away of the two men. They're, they're going to be accused of having reported on other things and done other things. That's always the way. They'll find other excuses to get them. But for us, the important thing is the timing of their detention. The fact that they have been targeted after reporting on this event, you know, supports our concern that actually it's a reprisal for having done their journalistic work on a case of torture leading to death. It's a case that is rather symptomatic of the present because it shows the many dimensions of different kinds of abuse all at once in a way. And as you said before, it's probably the anti-terror law is going to be the, the tool to fabricate some other crimes for these journalists, as they do. Emma, uh, we could go on forever. Unfortunately, we have so many heart-wrenching cases like this, but this was special and emblematic, as you said. But we are coming to a close. But before we close, I would like to ask you your opinion on the most underreported human rights problem in Turkey. That's a good one. A lot of the time we're so focused in the present on the misuse of detention, the misuse of terrorism laws, the fact of many thousands of people being arbitrarily jailed, that of course we don't get on to certain other human rights abuses that are going on. I mean, I think one area that isn't covered enough because people are anxious about it is the issue of abductions, people being actually uh, abducted, uh, held in secret detention and then later released. We have cases like that. We don't have hundreds of cases like that, but we certainly have cases like that. Some of them are aimed at people who are alleged to be Gulenists. Others are aimed at people involved in the Kurdish political movement. Those cases aren't getting enough attention, I believe, and that's an egregious human rights abuse to disappear people. I think that's one area, but I also think more generally, there are lots of issues we're not getting onto about what's going on in Turkey, workers' rights, isn't well covered. Environmental rights are also not well covered because we are just so focused on civil and political rights, the most uh, you know, extreme restrictions on freedom of expression, ill treatment in custody, people being detained for years on end with no, for no reason. So uh, yeah, I would, I would leave it on that note. It's um, awful to have to keep working on certain egregious abuses that we're seeing all the time, which means that you don't look at the wider spectrum of rights violations. Emma, thank you so much. Emma Sinclair Webb, Turkey Director at the Human Rights Watch, has been my guest today. Thank you so much for sharing all these insights with me, with us on the podcast. But this is the grim picture that we are faced today in today's Turkey. With your help, we try to unveil some of those stories at Freedom Dialogues. But for today, this is it from us. And until next time, stay safe. 
stay healthy and try to stay home. Goodbye. This podcast was produced with the financial support of the European Union. However, IPI has the sole responsibility of the content. Discussions and views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views of the European Union.